We welcome you to this assembly. We are anxious to invite you back. Another opportunity comes up on Wednesday night, Bible classes at 7. You can visit our website, lhmacallen.org. Our website generates interest outside of this building, becoming an evangelistic tool. It is also maintained for your use to listen to sermons presented here. Now over 800 audio recordings on that website, either resident there or linked. Wow, your preacher must be really old. If you were with us this morning, I spoke to us from Scripture about Bible authority. But I was not just talking about a book. I mentioned this morning that within that word authority, there is the word author. And we ought to think of this book in terms of its author. God is the supreme author behind the content of what we have in this book. He's the author of life, the creator of human life. Think of him as author, creator, owner, father. But with respect to our present subject, we must think of God as author of this book. And when I read this book and learn the rules and principles that I need and incorporate those in my mind and my life, I'm listening to God so that I can live for Him now and after death. Respect for the author of the Bible is essential for respect for what we call Bible authority. In the daily Bible reading plan that some of us follow, from about this time every year, there is a statement in Isaiah 48. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way that you should go. So that's why we open this book every time we are here. Having introduced the subject in that way today, I made reference also to Isaiah 52, 7. Two words, God reigns. He holds the right as the creator. He crowned Jesus as the king. The Holy Spirit has revealed the contents of this book. Man is not the authority. So the question we are addressing today is one of communication from heaven and response from man communication from heaven and response from man. This book is the communication from heaven. When we respond to it as directed in this book, that's what Bible authority is all about. It is our quest to discover what God authorizes, what he permits, what he forbids. How thankful we should be that through the Holy Spirit that's been revealed and we have it in this book. Now, in this second part of our study, when God speaks, what do we hear? I'm not going to offer a complicated formula, a set of hermeneutical rules, 
Just a question to answer. When God speaks, what do we hear? Sometimes he says, no. And this is often referred to as a prohibition. For example, in Colossians 3 and verse 9, do not lie. Now, think of this in, in a very simple illustration. Children, when your parents tell you no, you understand what that means. You don't need to look up the word. Now, you may not like their prohibition, but I hope you understand that your parents have your best interest in mind and that they are prohibiting either words or behavior they believe is harmful for you and for others. They are your parents. They hold the authority. God is our heavenly parent, and when he speaks to us through his word, the best response on our part <clears throat> when we have a prohibition is to decide, I'm not going to do that. God forbids it. Like our earthly parents, sometimes God says no. And the example in Colossians 3 and verse 9 is, do not lie. Now, do you need to look up those three words? Do not lie. Do you need any commentary about that? Any lengthy explanation? Do you need to look up the grammar behind it? Do you need someone to explain it? Well, no. It is simply a prohibition. And respect for God and love for Christ will cause us, in this case, to take heed to the prohibition and not lie. We will have to think about what that means in various situations. We certainly conclude this prohibition covers written lies, spoken lies, even lies that we may tell ourselves just in our head. God is aware of that. He says, do not lie. Sometimes when God speaks through his word, he simply says, no, don't do this. His authority is conveyed to us through written prohibitions. The written word, the Bible, has authority over us because of its authorship. It came from God who made us and owns us. Sometimes God says, look at this. He gives us an example. The Bible is filled with examples provided by God of good behavior and bad behavior. You ever go through the Old Testament in your daily Bible reading and in a narrative you immediately conclude they should not have done that, he should not have done that, she should not have acted that way. That's an example. But also in your reading of the Old Testament, you read good people doing good things. And that's an example on the positive side. Now, you come into the New Testament. There are examples. One instance is Acts 20 and verse 7. Christians were together in an assembly much like this. It was the first day of the week. 
Paul was with them, and with the disciples, they observed the Lord's Supper. That's exactly why we observe the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. We've got all these examples of the first day of the week. We've got this particular example. We've got the institution of the Lord's Supper. We know Jesus arose on the first day of the week. So we pay attention to Acts 20 and verse 7. That's the instruction God has given, and it becomes our practice, an approved example. Since we live under his authority, that's what we do. We are certain when we read the New Testament that it's good for us, right for us, required of us to remember the Lord's death in this memorial feast every first day of the week. And again, it is the case that this comes from not the publishers of the print version, not the translators, not in the minds of the apostles, but from the supreme author of this book. What a marvelous act of grace that we don't have to sit around and guess about what we ought to do. We don't have to make it up ourselves. We can read scripture. This book came from God. Sometimes God says nothing. Silence. When God says nothing, we cannot just fill in the blanks any way we want. We are obligated to respect the silence of God. Silence doesn't permit us to launch out on our own. Jesus, here's an example of what we're talking about. Jesus could not be a Jewish priest on earth because he was of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And concerning this, the writer makes the very point of that, speaking for God in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, it is evident, that has to do with clarity, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So God gave law for the Jews before Christ through Moses, and in this case, God, through Moses, said nothing. In that dispensation, no Jewish man from Judah could become a priest. This was a case where God said nothing. It was not a grant to do just anything. I should never argue that because God didn't say anything, I have permission. I can innovate. I can fill in the blanks. I need to respect the silence of God. So many activities and ministries and involvements of churches today presume on the silence of God. The attitude being perpetuated is, if God didn't say anything about it, it must be okay. How would that work with your parents, children? Your mother sends you to the store with $5 to buy a loaf of bread. 
And immediately you know that you don't have permission to spend the change on Snickers and Skittles and M&Ms. Obedience and respect for the authority of your mother means you're limited to what she authorized. You would not argue, Mom, you didn't say anything about Snickers and Skittles. She was silent about that, so it must mean I can get some? No. Sometimes God says nothing, and our response ought to be to respect his silence. Sometimes God says, do this. A command. God, through Jesus Christ, written in the New Testament, says to the sinner who believes the gospel, repent and be baptized. And that's written in Acts 2.38 and other places as well. And the person who comes to believe in Christ will not resist that if they really believe in Christ and their heart is right. Peter in communicating these commands of God in Acts 2.38, made it clear it wasn't limited. It wasn't a situational requirement that would expire the next generation. I want you to look at Acts 2.39 to confirm that. Acts 2.38 is repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Then in 39, Peter dismisses any idea that this was a limited command for that generation. When he says this, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who were far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So today when the gospel is given and that call of the gospel goes out to repent and be baptized, that's a command that needs to have the response of obedience. God, remember, is the author. He has authority. He has the right to issue commands to specify how our faith ought to be expressed. That's one way his authority is revealed to us for our good. And every time there is a command of God, the expected response is obedience. When you read all that is revealed in the New Testament about the work and organization of local churches, there are commands that require collective agreement and obedience. Sometimes God commands. Sometimes he leads us to a conclusion, which might also perhaps be described as a necessary inference or an expedient. Jesus, as a teacher, often led his students to a conclusion that had the greatest kind of clarity to it. He gave them facts. He quoted scripture, or he would make an argument, and that would logically and necessarily lead to the certainty of a conclusion. Deity communicates in that way, calling upon us to think, 
to use our minds God gave us to infer, to be led to a conclusion. Jesus in his teaching did not always use direct statements. Sometimes he led people to a necessary conclusion. Asking them to think and understand what is implied. One example, in Matthew 22, 34 to 40, where Jesus said, Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now think about what all is necessarily included in that statement. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. What if I were to say to you in Matthew 22, 34 to 40, where it says love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and mind, there's no obedience there. But if you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, what is implied? What are you led to? You are led to responding to God. In Hebrews 10.25, reference is made to Christians assembling together. And we are told not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. Well, what does that imply? What conclusion do those facts lead to? There must be a place where Christians come together. Now, a particular place isn't specified. It can be rented property, it can be someone's home, it can be out under a tree, or it can be a building like this. But if we are to assemble, the conclusion, the expedient, the necessary inference is there must be a place where we assemble, where that command is fulfilled. And so as we read the Word of God, we ought to think of it as God speaking to us in various ways. Through various forms that were given for our understanding. God says, no, don't think that, don't say that, don't do that. God says, look at this, look at what my people did under the direction of the apostles on the first day of the week. God says nothing. We cannot fill in all those blanks. God issues a command, repent and be baptized, or something is said in His Word that obviously and necessarily leads to a conclusion. For example, having a place where Christians assemble. As you read God's Word and you listen to Him speak in these various ways, you must and I must think immediately in terms of our response to Him. Remember what we're talking about today is communication from heaven and response on the part of man. And that brings me back to where I started in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you remember from this morning, if you were here, there's one phrase here that identifies what our response to God's word through Christ should be. Observe all that I have commanded. Now you can add to this a number of other references. Luke eleven twenty eight. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Acts five twenty nine. We must obey God. John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. James one twenty one. Be doers of the word. Philippians four and verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. An apostle wrote that, Philippians 4, 9. If I want the God of peace to be with me, I need to learn, receive, hear, and practice what is revealed through the apostles. And then, of course, there is 2 John 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. What is this all about in its depth? It is reverence for the author of life and the author of this book. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be glory now and forever. Amen. Let's be standing as we sing.